Hey friends, welcome to the Strangers in Common podcast. I hope this finds you well, but if you're not well, well, that's okay. I'm always here for you. Kind of crazy that we're going into episode three of season three. When I first started this, I really didn't think (laughs) it would get too far, maybe a couple episodes, but it's been great talking and meeting new people and getting to know even better people that I already knew. So let's go ahead and jump into episode three and get to know somebody that you don't. And today, that person is Bernadette. Thank you, Bernadette, for joining me on this. I appreciate it. If you want, we can start the journey through your life wherever you feel like starting off at. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for having me. Um, uh, Grew up in Denver, Colorado. Um, Currently live in San Diego. normal family, three older sisters. Um, I was the youngest, I guess you can say. I was kind of the son my father never had. Um, oh. he, started, <laughs> he basically made me the boy. Uh, taught me how to hunt, fish, started coaching me in football and baseball, taught me how to box. So of all my sisters, I was, I would say I was his son. None um, of your sisters did that stuff? Nope. They're all very girly. Uh, even okay. now they're the kind of arts and crafts, he does baking, all that stuff. I'm still very, uh, we'll just say I'm not very much of a, <laughs> a homely person. <laughs> the, the Susie homemaker? <laughs> no, that's definitely not me. Uh, never has been, honestly. Um, in high school, you know, I think I've always just been one of those persons that kind of just danced to the beat of my own drum. Um, I wasn't diagnosed when I was young, but when I was in my teens, I was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar disorder and attention attention deficit hyperactivity. Jesus Christ, I can't talk. ADHD. We'll just do that because I can see Yeah, I know what it is. So what's, <laughs> what's type 2 bipolar disorder then? So there's two different types of bipolar disorder. There's type 1 and type 2. Type 1 are the people who generally go into full mania. So those are the people that you'll see kind of going completely off the rails, like disappearing. Um, you know, just doing really crazy shit. And type two are people who do not go on complete mania. Um, We do still very much have like the highs and lows and the lack of impulse control and things of that nature, but it's, we don't necessarily like go as far off the rails as people type one. So we're crazy, but we're just, we're just, we're like generic crazy compared to Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, I shouldn't, and I don't really mean that in like an offensive way because no, no, I know. Kind of neurodivergence is, is actually, a, it's very difficult. And one thing I will be in talking about myself is very transparent because I feel like a lot of, there's a lot of stigma around mental illness and a lot of people struggle with it. And there's not a lot of resources and a lot of understanding and patience for it, you know? Um, right. And so there's a lot of people that struggle and don't feel like they have anybody who understands or who can talk to them about it or can relate. And so I can definitely say 
my life has been a struggle. There's been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of learning that I had to do to be able to, I guess you can say, function like as normal of a person as I can. Right. Um, and it, it took a lot of work to get there. And I, So how, I did, how did that affect you in high school then? Because you said it was your teenage years. Uh, well, you know, in high school, I did a lot of, let, let me start with in elementary school. Um, I was really, really, really bullied in third grade. Um, the entire class hated me. I don't know what happened. I don't, you know, understand because kids are just mean and I understand that now, but you know, when you're nine years old, you don't really understand what you're doing wrong. And so I would spend every single day, uh, Kids would like yell at names at me, spit on me, put gum in my hair. I was tied to a tetherball pole one time and had rocks thrown at me. I had kids follow me home from school and tried to push me in oncoming traffic, and I almost got hit by a car. Um, Basically, my elementary and junior high school life was not very fun. (laughs) I spent a, a big majority of junior high kind of hiding in stairwells so that kids could not... Uh, find me and pick on me. Um, I think that because of that experience, when I got to high school, I kind of got fed up with being picked on. And I've always kind of danced to the beat of my own drum. And I've always wanted to do very different things than other people. And so when I got into high school, because I had been a tomboy, um, I wanted to play certain sports and the sports that I wanted to play, they did not have an equivalent uh, female sport. So I played football, baseball, and wrestling. Okay. I was the, the first girl in my high school to, to do those sports. Um, and it was, it was hard at first, of course. I mean, what, right. what boys football team wants a girl on their team. So I, mean, <laughs> I, would, I would get the shit beat out of me. Uh, by the way, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss or not. I yeah, you're fine. You're fine. No, I cuss <laughs> okay. all the time. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I would I would get the shit beat out of me at practice, but I never cried. That's one thing I never did is I never showed, you know, how much I was hurt. And right. I, I think part of that kind of helped transpired into kind of how resilient I am throughout my life is – when whether that's a good or bad thing, I can't really say. It's definitely just a defense mechanism. We all develop those when we go through certain traumas in our life or stressful right. situations or whatever. Um, but you know, I know, and I didn't quit, and that was one of the things you know that I can say that I was proud of about myself is that I I've always done very difficult, unique stuff, and. I usually stick it out. Like I'm not a quitter. I don't usually quit many things in life. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't do boring things. Um, I've never been somebody who I think can put myself in a box and say normal, um, you know, whatever normal is. I mean, obviously. I was, was going to say, I don't know if anybody really has a normal, <laughs> normal life, but <laughs> you've definitely done stuff that I have not done for sure. So, <laughs> I just think a lot of of what I wanted when I was younger was because of all the bullying and, and stuff through uh, my younger years is I just, I wanted people to notice me. And I think that's where 
the wanting to play football. And in addition to also wanting to do different things, I think that's where a lot of that came from is I just wanted people to notice me. I wanted to not be invisible anymore. And I wanted to be a part of things and, you know, cause it was, it was really lonely. It was hard being bullied. I mean, no, I, I get it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wish I could say that, you know, that stuff, was as I got older and I learned better that that stuff didn't affect me, but I'll be honest, there's still stuff from then back in my elementary school days that still impacts me today. Um, you know, and that's one thing I can say if, you know, somebody's out there and they're getting bullied or they have a kid that's bullying their kid or whatever, or your kid's the bully, like nick that shit in the butt, because I'll tell you what, it does go through somebody's life throughout their life. No, oh, yeah, no, I'll agree with you 100% on that. It's it, it's funny because I, it, you know, I was very much, I was very small. I had white hair. I was a towhead and I was a target, you know, because I was an easy target basically. But yeah, it, it messes with you for sure for a lot of different reasons. Well, and it's hard. It's, I think it's harder today for kids too because now there's this social media outlet that kids have now and it's so much easier to bully somebody through words and through a screen than face to face oh yeah 100 you know? <laughs> so i mean i'm really glad i grew up when i did because i i mean i feel blessed in a lot of ways because you know you still went outside and, and played and enjoyed life and you didn't live behind a phone and you remember right. <laughs> moments and you got to have experiences like if your car broke down in the middle of nowhere you didn't have a cell phone you had to walk your ass somewhere <laughs> and find a right. phone yep hopefully you <laughs> got was, some quarters <laughs> there was no gps you gotta hope to hell you wrote through that wrote down the directions properly or you didn't get where you were going you know right but yet you always managed to find your way there that's what was always fun you know yeah I always miss those days like the it was simple i guess like people weren't you were able to get away with a lot more, like riding in the backseat of a, a pickup truck, you know, right. sitting on the rails and, and drinking from the garden hose and just all the things that today's kids will never get to experience. Like that right. I feel blessed for. Um, I guess yeah, to get it's, it's definitely a <laughs> different age, so that's for sure. But uh, I guess to get back onto things, you know, going through high school, I also think I did a lot of the things because I wanted to make my dad proud. I was really, really close growing um, with my dad growing up. Um, and like I said, he had four daughters. I'm, you know, no parent likes to say they have their favorite, but I, I kind of think maybe I might've been, you know, my father actually passed away last February and it's, right. it's been incredibly hard trying to navigate life without him. Um, don't want to get to that emotional part yet. So you're good. You're good. <laughs> uh, so I, after high school, you know, I joined the Navy. Um, like my, my father was a Marine. I was going to go into the Marine Corps, but I went into the Navy. Um, and in the Navy, I met my son's father in boot camp. Okay. And he was my first everything, <laughs> first boyfriend, lost my virginity to him. Um, you know, all that fun stuff. We were together for about four years and it was a very emotionally abusive relationship. Granted, um, you know, I 
didn't know any different because it was my first relationship. So right. it, it basically planted this seed in my head that this is the way things are supposed to be. So here I am, 46. I am single. <laughs> uh, I'm okay with that. But we'll just say that I haven't had very many healthy relationships throughout my life. And I, I don't, I'm not blaming everything on like my other partners because I certainly have character defects that contributed to it. But I have been in a lot of uh, abusive relationships. So I think that, that, you know, all stemmed from probably elementary school when I was picked on like I just I guess for some reason I've always thought that that I, I I was all those things that those kids were saying or my exes were saying like I never it's taken a long time to build confidence in myself and right. what's funny the, the kind of the the funny thing about all that is a lot of the things I did required an incredible amount of confidence and yet yeah. I had no confidence <laughs> but I did these things that required confidence so I was kind of like a walking contradiction, I guess. <laughs> but it, it, it happens because it's, it, it's almost it's almost like a false bravado. Like you have to put it on that way, you know, they don't come at you basically when you're doing that stuff. Very true. Um, but then at the same time, it was also like I wanted to do these things. And like I didn't – when I – when I put my mind to something like it's almost like there's no stopping me. Um, gotcha. And again, that that's either that can be a good thing and that can be a bad thing. Cause I mean, I've <laughs> not right. always made the best decisions in my life. <laughs> and let me tell you, I don't half-ass anything. So <laughs> if, I, if I fuck shit up, I fuck it up pretty darn good. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I was pregnant. Uh, I, I got pregnant with my son. I only have one child at, um, towards the end of my relationship with my ex, my first ex, and he had cheated on me with mm -hmm. uh, somebody who was a high school best friend of mine. Um, you know, and that was really hard, of course. I mean, anybody who gets cheated on, it's obviously not fun. Right. Um, but also <laughs> being six months pregnant, you know, was, <laughs> it was a lot. And uh, she asked, also has a child from my my son's oh. dad, um, but you know his he's not a part of either of his children's lives. And honestly, me and that other person have made amends and and have worked through what had happened back then. Because quite frankly, you know, when you're 20 and you're 46, I mean, there's a lot that happens in 20 years. So right. you can't really hang on to grudges you know, for the rest of your life, because at the end of the day, you're the only person that's going to hurt with that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, after I got out of the military, you know, I was a single mom and I was struggling really, really hard with my uh, mental illness, or I guess neurodivergence is what they want to call it today, you know. Like I said, right. I grew up. I grew up in an age where you can say a lot more things, and there wasn't <laughs> a specific way it had to be said. But I'll try to use the politically correct term. You can so. you can use whatever term you feel comfortable <laughs> with. To be honest, it's fine. Uh, but I really struggled in my twenties, and it was really hard being a single parent who didn't even have the ability to love myself. So it was really hard to be able to show love 
to a child. Now, don't get me wrong. My son is my entire world and we have a phenomenal relationship now. And I always loved him. Like from the moment he was born, of course, I would have, I would have died for my son, but I didn't know how to love him. And so it was, it was really hard. I, I would go out a lot. Um, You know, I wasn't present a lot. My parents, thank God I had the support system I had. Like my son is an amazing, wonderful, humble person today. And I'm not just saying that as a bias. Like if you ever met him, that kid is a phenomenal person. And I can't take credit for a lot of that. I mean, that's my mom and dad and that's him. Um, I mean, you know, there's parts of who he's becoming that I've contributed to, like what you're not supposed to do in life. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I had help with them and there was, we decided, you know, when he was about, I want to say he was about 10 years old to just let him live with my mom and dad. Um, that was mostly because of him having to go to school and me having to work. And so it's easier for me to just let him stay with my parents during the week and me on the weekends um, so that he didn't have to wake up super early to go to school. And since my sister worked at the school he went to, she would pick him up for my parents and then take him to school. So we kind of had decided that a long time ago and it ended up working out better for him. It was a much more stable environment, um, et cetera, et cetera. I, did a lot of partying in my 20s. I wouldn't say that I was ever really a drug addict or an alcoholic, but I certainly would go out every weekend and did a lot of substances. And sometimes I look back and I'm like, I don't know how the hell I'm alive today. Right. Uh, I did go through a period um, in 2008 where I did go into a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I spent some time in the program and I did work the 12 steps. And I will say this to anybody who might be struggling from alcohol or drug addiction, that program does work. If you, you know, if you want help and sobriety, I realized through time that my issues were not really drugs or alcohol. Cause to be honest, I went through my period of partying, but I don't really, didn't really drink too much. And, you know, once I kind of got tired of all the partying, I stopped doing that, but my problems were more deeper and that was with the mental illness and, you know, learning how to, to deal with that. But I wanted to find a reason for why I was so miserable and why I hated being alive and why I felt the way I felt. So for me going into AA was kind of a way for me to be like, okay, well, I'm an alcoholic, so maybe this is my problem, and if this is what it is, then this is what can be fixed. Even though I wasn't an alcoholic, I can say I did learn some very valuable things in the program through the 12 steps. Like you, you start to see a lot of character defects about yourself, um, and when you start to realize those things, you can start to understand why you exhibit certain behaviors. And once you know, you're aware of certain behaviors, that's when you can start to work on not doing those things, Right, right. <laughs> you know, but you also get a great support system. And I still have friends today that I'm friends with that I met in the program, even though I'm no longer a part of the program. But, um, you know, it was, it was a pivotal part of my life that kind of started to open my eyes to the fact that I didn't need to be miserable my whole life, that I wasn't 
this worthless, ugly, fat piece of shit that I had felt like I was my whole life, not only from being bullied, but for allowing myself to believe that image of myself. Right. So that kind of started it. Um, during that time, I was the heaviest I've ever been in my life. I was roughly around 225 pounds. So of course, you know, when you feel like crap about yourself, um, that doesn't help. <laughs> so I would, when my, I was little, my dad would always like teach us how to box. And so I saw an advertisement for uh, kickboxing for a free week. And so I tried it out and I fell in love with it. And so I basically started kickboxing um, and doing jujitsu, you know, six days a week. And wow. I'm, a, I'm a very competitive person by nature. I get that from my father. So, <laughs> you know, training, I started to lose weight and get in shape. And so I wanted to, again, I, I also feel like I needed that, not validation, but like to want to have some attention because I've been basically felt invisible most of my life. So the need to compete was always there to drive. So I started competing in jujitsu tournaments and then that wasn't enough. And I started doing Muay Thai smokers and then I wanted to eventually step in the cage and actually do MMA. And so I did that. I did um, two, three MMA fights. I lost two and won one. And then I did a kickboxing match and I won. And I was training to do my second kickboxing match when I was three weeks out and I broke my arm and had to have surgery. Um, and that pretty much kind of retired me. Now, all this happened when I was 36. I didn't do this when I was young. I started all right. this stuff <laughs> when I was older because, you know, for some reason, I'm just always a little bit late to the ball game, I guess. Um, but I had had various surgeries throughout my, you know, my fighting career as well. And, you know, I'm a surgical tech. That's my profession. And unfortunately, I was an amateur fighter. So having all these surgeries was taking away from me making income. So when I broke my arm that last time and had to have surgery, that was kind of like where I was like, okay, you might need to reconsider your life choices here because <laughs> you're, not, you're not making any money doing this and you are also not a spring chicken anymore. So maybe you need to stop fighting. So I did stop fighting. Um, ended up in a, another, this one I wouldn't say was an abusive relationship. We'll just say he was incredibly codependent and oh, okay. not very motivated or driven. Basically, I supported this man for six, I'm only, I'm glad it only lasted six months, but talk about somebody who did nothing, like literally nothing. It was a lot and it drained me. And I'm, I was getting ready to move to San Diego uh, for the first time. I've been back and forth as a contract workers, San Diego for, you know, several times. Now I'm right. here permanently, but um, finally, before I was going to move out here, I, kind of told him he had to go. Um, I kind of hung on to the relationship, I think, because I'm a very empathetic person. And I knew this person had nowhere to go. And so I essentially felt like, well, I can't just kick this person on the street. But then it got to be too much. And I'm like, okay, this this guy's got to go. I can't do this. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, that's tough when you have empathy for somebody, but they're, it's not beneficial to you. No, not at all. And it, it drains the life out of you, you know? And Unfortunately, 
in this process, I, you know, went from being a, you know, elite athlete to, I, I don't want to say let myself go, but kind of let myself go and, you know, gained some weight back, um, and kind of stopped taking care of myself the way that I was. And so I started to slip back in some of my old habits of, you know, self-destructive habits of how I thought about myself and things like that. So I got involved with roller derby and roller derby is a very fun sport. It is also a violent sport because <laughs> why would I want to do something like, you know, basket weaving or something that right. require, you know, hitting people. But, um, but the good, good thing about roller derby that I like is even though it's a competitive contact sport, it is a community of people. Basically there's not a lot of, there are male leagues, but for the most part, it's predominantly a female thing. There are co-ed leagues too, but for the most part, it is a group of women basically building each other up. I mean, if you ever go to a roller derby game, there are some big women and they are in. Oh shape. yeah. Oh <laughs> you yeah. Know what I mean? So all ages, shapes, sizes, um, you know, of roller derby and it's, it's a positive environment and atmosphere. And I really enjoyed, you know, playing and, and things like that. And then, um, COVID happened and I was out here in San Diego Oof. and you know, I work in the medical field, so I know a lot of people didn't work during that time. And even some medical workers didn't work during that time. Well, I worked at a level one trauma hospital, so Ooh. I never not worked through COVID. I was actually working sometimes 100 hours a week. Um, it was very awful. I would, you know, definitely help transport bodies to a freezer truck because we didn't have space in our morgue. Right. Um, being at a level one trauma hospital um and out here in san diego unlike in san francisco they don't have any barrier on the coronado bridge so we would get a lot of suicides that would come through that of people that have jumped off the coronado bridge and oh, you don't geez. necessarily die instantly because it's a body of water but you pretty much implode your inside so by the time we get to us at a level one trauma and we make an incision you basically bleed out that's a lot of what happens when people jump off the coronado bridge if they don't die on impact oh wow um, so i got to see a lot of death and it was hard and knowing that my dad wasn't in the best of health i was like okay maybe i need to go back to colorado and be with my family and so I did go back to Colorado. Um, I took a contract as a surgical tech out there. And shortly after getting back to Colorado, I met this man who has become my recent ex, who I would say <laughs> was the most abusive uh, relationship I'd ever been in. Um, I obviously didn't know it at the time. <laughs> right. And, you know, one thing that I'm starting to really learn is that I tend to like, like I said, I'm either all in or all out right away. And so learning to take, take a breath and slow down is one of the lessons I'm getting from this last relationship. Cause we kind of moved very quickly. Uh, we moved in together after dating for only a month. And right after we moved in together is when this person changed, you know, um, you know, to get, I'm just going to go ahead and be very detailed about a lot of No, things. you're fine. And go ahead. You're good. We'll just say, uh, you know, as soon as we moved in together, um, 
there was no intimacy anymore. You know, he would pretend to like want to cuddle with me and stuff like that, but there was certainly no sex and I'm a very sexual person. So that was, you know, kind of hindering my self-esteem a little bit. And then when this man would lose his temper, like he would just scream and throw things and break things and then would say such demeaning shit to me. And I, like, I never like really reacted. I would just kind of like mostly just sit there and be like, what the fuck is happening? But I didn't really know how to handle it either. Like I, I would shut down. I guess that was my defense mechanism was shutting down. Um, so, and I, so I, I know you met him out in Colorado. Did you guys move in together in Colorado? We did. And okay. my, I went against, of course, every gut instinct that I have. And we did move out to San Diego together. But no longer, <laughs> we are no longer in contact. But, um, you know, I'm just going to basically the last couple years of my life, I would say have been the hardest couple years of my life because, uh, you know, being in that relationship, losing my father, um, those have all been some of the hardest things I've had to go through. Uh, and you don't really realize, like, it's funny cause you'll, you'll look at other people's relationships and you'll see like a toxic relationship and you'll be like, you know, I don't know why they put up with that. If I was ever right. in that situation, I wouldn't do that. And then here I am, you know, out of uh, that situation and I stayed in it way too long and no idea why, like I, I didn't want to be with the man for the longest time, but I guess I just, I got so comfortable being treated that way that it felt normal. And so I'd kind of just come to terms with, okay, I guess this is how things are going to be. Um, but you know, if I look at like the course of my, childhood up through now i mean i i kind of got used to always having to put up with some kind of verbal abuse i not i was blessed to have a really good family um some people don't have that but i was fortunate that maybe my social life and childhood wasn't great but i did have a loving family so at least i was shown love in that area um but yeah this man you know he broke me and I didn't realize it until well honestly these past few months um right as he finally was willing to move out I of course get injured getting ready to skate and parade <laughs> with my roller derby team and pour my hamstrings off the bone and had yeah. to have surgery so right as I'm you know taking on full financial responsibility of everything I have to have surgery <laughs> And then I have to live off state disability, which is only 60% of my income. So we have a timeline of my father passes away, abusive ex finally moves out, have surgery and have to struggle to survive. (laughs) And I'm kind of being dramatic on that a little bit, but, um, you know, I'm sure California is not cheap. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm sure California is not cheap. Well, San Diego did just get voted as the most expensive city to live in. So, oh, fantastic! Say that, right? Let's just say this: I pay twenty four hundred dollars for an eight hundred square foot studio. Holy crap! Yeah, it's lower than yeah. <laughs> well, and, but is that where you want to be at? Is that where you want to be at? Is out there? I love it out here. I really do. Um, I'm kind of in this like in between place where 
I always have felt like I belonged out here, which is why I've been back and forth to San Diego so many times. But then when I'm out here, I always feel like a part of me is missing. And that's because my son is in Colorado and my family is in Colorado. So it's like, it's like, I'm trying to figure out like, where do I really fit? You know, cause I, I love life. Like the weather out here is perfect. It's gorgeous. I'm 10 minutes from the beach. I mean, honestly in San Diego, unless you're heading up to LA, you're 15 minutes from anywhere. <laughs> Going up to LA, you're about two days from anywhere. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go up to LA very much at all. But you know, in Colorado, I have my family and I have my son. And you know, now that my, I mean, honestly, now that my dad's passed, um, my son really is is the main reason for Colorado. It's not that I don't love or miss the rest of my family, but to get into I, some 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 of the hard stuff. Yeah. Uh, I went through some tough stuff with my sisters when my father um, basically what happened to him. So he was 80 years old. He died unexpectedly, but it wasn't instant. He choked on a piece of steak and aspirated oh. into his lungs. And my son was with him. And, you know, my son uh, and my dad were like best friends. And so this has been incredibly hard on him too. I mean, of course, it's hard I on everybody, imagine. but... Uh, my son has basically witnessed every traumatic event that went through with my father. And, you know, he's, he was a lot like my dad doesn't show a lot of emotion. So he's been, you know, finally willing to go get some therapy to kind of deal with some of the trauma okay. of what he went through. Cause I mean, I think, you know, he really needs to, cause it, it was a lot. Um, but you know, not to get too much off onto him because I'm sure he would not want me talking too much about, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> about him. But uh, a few years ago, my father told me that I was his medical power of attorney. And, you know, I mean, I'm the, you know, the one daughter that's in medicine and I, I've been in surgery for 23 years. Um, right. So when he told me that, I kind of just asked him, you know, because you don't ever think you're going to have to make that difficult decision, right? So I'd asked him, I'm like, okay, well, if the situation should ever arise, you know, what would you want me to do? And he's like, well, I don't want to be hooked up to a ventilator. He was like, I don't want to be a vegetable. He's like, just, you know, let me go be with your mom. I lost my mom in 2012 and my parents were still married um, gotcha. at the time. So uh, she, my mom died from lung cancer. But um, so, you know, that had that conversation with him. Well, you know, they had to do CPR on my father. Um, they ended up getting him back and, but they had to intubate him. And I was in San Diego, got called. I flew back to Colorado and, you know, I haven't always had like the best, and I, like I said, part of this is, you know, people's lack of understanding of like mental illness. And I'm not trying to blame a lot of my poor decisions and bad behaviors on my, my mental illness, but you know, there are some things that I do, I cannot help. And right. my sisters don't necessarily understand a lot of that. So I've had a difficult time with some of them growing up. I'm not, you know, I love my sisters. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I know that, you know, we're always there for each other and stuff, but they didn't necessarily understand me a lot. So when I flew back to Colorado, they basically lied to me and said that I wasn't my dad's power of attorney. And since I had oh. never seen an official document, I, you know, what am I, I don't know any different. Uh, I was made to believe that we all were uh, a medical power of attorney. And in a way we, there's an order 
um, if you've ever seen like a legal document, there is an order, but I was the primary. And then in my absence, one of my other sisters was and so on and so forth. Oh, gotcha. but, but, but I was never told right away that I was the primary. And so there were some medical decisions that were made um, that I knew my father wouldn't have wanted made. And then finally, one of my sisters, uh, you know, finally broke down and she's like, I can't lie to you anymore. She's like, it's just, it's really eating at me. And she's like, you know, you are dad's medical power of attorney. And she's like, I, I just can't lie to you anymore. And, you know, that devastated me because I was not, trust me, I didn't, it wasn't because I was, oh, let's pull the plug on my dad. It right. was because my sisters didn't have enough trust or, or, you know, belief in me for doing the right thing that they would lie to me. And that really hurt me. Um, like I said, this is going to be the emotional part. So I'm sorry. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Like I said, it, if you're okay talking about it, we can. If you're not, that's fine too. Like, um, like I said, I'd, I'd like to be as transparent as, as possible because I know people struggle. And so to share some of the struggle, I guess, is my way of trying to help somebody who might be struggling through right. my experience. Um, but, you know, my my dad was sort of coherent when I first got there. Um, and he, he was writing on paper and everything and asking questions and had just wanted the tube out of his mouth. Right. And, um, you know, I understood, you know, like the medications he was on and a lot of what the doctors were talking about and stuff. And my sisters don't. I'm the only one in my family that's in medicine. And they came in to try to do a test to see if he, they could extubate him. And, you know, the man had CPR. And if you've ever known anybody who has had CPR done or have seen CPR done, when that gets done, we, we have to break the ribs to be able to do an, the compressions hard enough to be able to pump your heart. So you're going to have broken ribs if you had CPR done on you. Right. And so here's an 80 year old man who might, you know, heavy set who has broken ribs um, and you, they sit him straight up to try to get him to, to see if he can reach the breathing levels to extubate. And of course he starts, you know, hyperventilating. Well, I mean, you're, you're crushing the broken ribs he has, so that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, right. the ICU nurse started like blurting out, you know, we need to start this medication, this medication, this medication. Long story short, they put him in a medically induced coma. Um, so I, you know, I looked at a lot of the meds that he was on and I was like, you know, this is an awful lot of, and granted, I'm not, my experience is in the operating room. I'm not a doctor. I'm a surgical tech. And yes, I, I know I've been in the OR for 23 years. I do have a lot of medical knowledge, but by no means do I, do I, you know, claim to be somebody that, you know, knows every aspect of medicine. So I, of course, like everybody else, trust that people that are taking care of my family members are taking care of them with their expertise. So right. I, even though I knew like all these medications he was on, like I knew what they did. I assumed that they were, you know, proper doses of medications that you're supposed to be on. Well, me and my son were in there with my dad um, and he starts to go into cardiac arrest, oh. right? Shortly after they had started a lot of these meds. And so, you know, of course, they're almost about having to do CPR again. And then they get my dad back. And it was pretty much that day that was the last day that I had ever saw my dad, you know, conscious. Um, right. 
so at this particular point, my dad is now intubated. He is a, he was diabetic and he was in stage four renal failure. Then having this event happen, kicked him into stage five renal failure. Um, he never wanted to be on dialysis. My son has lived with my dad. Like I said, he moved in when he was 10. And there was a lot of times, you know, my mom died in 2012. So my son has basically been, you know, with my dad, like 24 seven since then. And, right. you know, my sisters of course would come and visit and I could, would go visit my dad and stuff, but my son knew my father inside out. And there was a lot of times, you know, my dad was a heavy drinker. There were times that my, my son would have to, you know, put my dad to bed or there was a time mm. when my dad had hip problems and needed a total hip and, was on Lasix and couldn't make it, you know, t to the bathroom where it would fall over. And my son would sometimes have to pick him up and like, did a, you know, had a lot of conversations and took care of my dad. And my son's input was never, ever taken into consideration through any of the process of what went on with my father when he was in the hospital. And that's, you know, one of the things that I think is hard too, is that my, my son should have been a part of some of the decisions that were made because he was, he was my son, my dad's son. They called each right. other, you know, he called my dad, dad, basically. Um, but he knew my dad never wanted dialysis. And that was one of the decisions that was made before I was informed I was power of attorney is they went ahead and allowed him to have a dialysis catheter put in and put on dialysis. Mm, no. So my dad is intubated with a dialysis catheter, a feeding tube, a rectal tube and a Foley catheter. And we are now left to make the decision as to whether or not to do a tracheostomy. Oh, I am the medical power of attorney. So what I say basically is, you know, the end all be all of the decisions. Like they could say whatever they want, but I would be the one that would have the ultimate decision. Right. And, you know, when it came down to say that I was trying to explain to them, I'm like, I'm like, dad does not want this. I'm like, you guys have to really, really think about like, Look at this man right now. He is never going to be the same. There is no joy in this man's life. And you want to keep him alive, thinking he's going to come back home one day and be like he was before. I'm like, he isn't. And I'm like, trust me, I don't want my father to die. But all we're going to do is prolong pain for him and suffering. And they, they didn't want to hear it. And we had a meeting about why we should or shouldn't do, you know, the tracheostomy. And while we were sitting down doing that meeting, one of my sisters basically said, you know, if you don't decide to do this, I will take every cent of that man's estate and I will stop you. And I was just literally so disgusted at what she had just said to me that I got up and I walked out. I'm like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. And I, I, I left and I had rescinded my power of attorney to my sister, my other sister below me, who she was really religious. And I knew that she would make the better decisions than the other two. And it was just, um, it was really hard because I fought really hard because I knew what my dad wanted. Right. I, you know, and, and that's a really heavy decision for somebody to have to carry on their shoulders. You know, I'm deciding my father's fate basically. And, you know, I knew in the end that my dad would not want us hating each other 
And so the only thing that I felt that I could do was just to walk away because I, I couldn't be there to fight with them anymore. I just didn't have it in me. And, you know, long story short, they did do the trach. Um, my dad did gain some consciousness here and there, but he was never completely coherent. Um, they were going to send him to a long-term care facility. Uh, and two days before he was supposed to go to that long-term care facility was when he passed away. I was basically at work. My son called me and said they were doing CPR on him again. And so I got a flight and they kept my dad alive while I was on the flight until I could get to the hospital. And then we disconnected him from life support and he oh, passed away. Man. So that was a very traumatic um, event. And while I'm going through all this, by the way, I'm still living with the abusive ex who refused to move out until the end of the lease because his name was on the lease and he didn't want to sign, you know, basically it was another one of those situations. He had nowhere to go. So he was gonna just write it out, write it out. But he was, he was making it the most like uncomfortable situation as possible. So I'm living with this like abusive person. My father is dying. I'm dealing with sisters who are, you know, and don't get me wrong. Like I understand where they're coming from. I sometimes like, I sometimes get frustrated, not frustrated, but I sometimes feel like, I don't know what the right word is, but with me being in the medical field, I, I don't get that same level of hope that other people get because I kind of know more the reality of what usually happens. Like we all wanna believe our family member is gonna be the exception to that statistic, right? And if you're not somebody who works in the medical field, you're, you know, it's easier for you to have hope and, and to see the light at the end of the tunnel versus somebody who sees constantly these same situations over and over and, you know, the end result usually being what is, you know, eventually them passing away. Right. Um, so a lot of what I've been dealing with, I would say up till today is, you know, how to process did I do the right thing for my dad? Um, how to forgive my sisters because, you know, it, they're my sisters and I will always love them, but I don't particularly like them right now. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess I never touched on any of my music producing. Um, well, I was going to ask about that because that was, uh, that I know that's a big thing with you right now. <laughs> we'll say that was my COVID hobby. I picked that up during COVID. Um, and I started, you know, taking lessons from a pretty, pretty big name house producer now. And I worked with him for like three and a half years. And now he blew up that he can't really do lessons. So I'm kind of, <laughs> you know, learning on my own now and, and taking lessons from um, another guy. But music's what? kind of what's, what's been keeping me sane. We'll say uh, music's <laughs> the one thing I've had through the this past year which was the worst year of my life um that has kept me sane and kept me going um i'm not suicidal nor have i ever thought about killing myself but you know if you're somebody out there and you're struggling with you know life and you feel like you're being suffocated and let me tell you i can totally relate to that because i i feel that a lot but i also am very blessed and i've gotten to 
have a lot of really good experiences, you know, let's get off the bad and we'll go on to the good now. Like, you know, <laughs> I go to these music festivals and I have met a whole group of people that are now like my, you know, they're like my festival family. Like, you know, for my birthday when I had just had surgery and I couldn't do anything, like all my friends live in like LA or two hours away from me and they drove down to come and spend my birthday with me. That's you know, awesome. Or, when we go to these festivals, like we just go and you, you get to be with people who just are with each other and love each other for who you are and, you know, want to help build each other's successes and everything. And to have that like group of friends, I didn't have that when I was younger. So I'm very blessed that I have that now. And, you, you know, people who support me through my goals and stuff with music, um, I'm starting to actually you know, get recognized. Now you, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that I'm necessarily gonna be playing big stages anytime soon. But you know that you, is you don't know that. <laughs> that that is the goal, and and I feel like there's opportunities that are presenting themselves. So it, it's possible it could happen. But uh, you know, at the same time, that's another you know thing that I'm looking at is when I first started producing music. Um, my mentor had asked me, he's like, so what's your goal with all of this? And like, I've been going, you know, to raves and stuff since I was young. Um, and I've always been fascinated with, with wanting to produce. I just didn't know how to do it. And so, you know, it was really cool to get that opportunity with him. But when he asked me that, it was just like, my goal was, I just want to make one song. I want to know what it's like to complete a song. Well, you know, we're coming up on four years now and I've completed multiple songs. I've have a few tracks signed to some record labels. I've played um, Camp EDC, which isn't the actual festival itself, but it's still a pretty big deal. Um, right. One, I never thought I would DJ period in front of people. And even though I've never, you know, played for a particularly large crowd, I have put myself out there and have played some shows here and there. Um, you know, I feel like more opportunities will present themselves as I uh, start to build my brand. Basically, you know, with the entertainment industry, you can be an, an amazing producer, but what a lot of labels and, and promoters are looking for is a brand, you know, and right. so that's something I'm developing right now. And a lot of what what a brand means is what's the world that you create around yourself with your music. And so with my music, and the brand that I'm trying to create is basically, I want to be a representation of a survivor, of somebody who's been through lots of trauma, who's had odds stacked against me, who's, you know, been at war with my own mind my whole life. And to show people that you can go through all those things, but you can still do whatever you want to do. You don't have to, you don't have to not try, you know? Right. I mean, I never would have thought that I would be where I am today with music. I never thought that I had that potential or that capability. And, you know, even if I never get to play a big festival, as far as I'm concerned, I've already succeeded because I've excelled past what my initial goal was, you know, and I've made music that people, that has touched people. And that's really what it's about, you know. Music is something I feel that connect. that's something that it doesn't matter who you are in this world. You could be, you know, you can be heavy, you could be thin, you could be white, you can be black, you could be whatever. 
but music is the one commonality that people share in the whole world where when you're around it that's what i love about festivals is there's always going to be assholes but 98 percent of the people at a music festival are all there just having a good time sharing the love of music and that's what i love about the you know the festival and the rave culture is right the just the love of the music the love that's that's built around it and like i said yes there's always going to be shitty people and there's always going to be you know people are always going to think well you just go there to do drugs or to do this or to do that and yeah there's things like that that's a part of that community but if you've ever gone to a festival then you know what i'm talking about and if you haven't well go to one and then you'll understand it's not about the drugs it's not you know it's about the love that all you do is you go there and like when i go to edc in vegas every year there is 300,000 people and everybody is having a good time and you see nothing but happy people enjoying music and to be in that atmosphere for three days, totally worth it. Oh, I can imagine. I've never been, so I'll have to go sometime. <laughs> I mean, even if it's not your thing, just to experience something like that, you know, it's, right. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's pretty breathtaking. I remember that my very first EDC, like walking into the speedway and just the, the way that they, the production quality of everything that gets put on like it's insane it's just gorgeous you know it's like being I, in a I, whole different world for like three days <laughs> yeah i've seen pictures and videos and stuff and it's it definitely looks out of the out of this world like for sure on that so um, i don't know how much time what's your I probably you're fine. too much <laughs> no you're fine what's your what's your music under because i know you changed your name from the original one right yeah, um, basically, um, my I go by suspense scene, and the reason that uh, I've come up with that name is basically, you know, you heard about my life. Everything I do is just different. So you like, <laughs> like that adrenaline, you know, that adrenaline-seeking thing. I do extreme sports. Um, I love horror movies, you know. So that anticipation, that feeling before something happens that suspenseful feeling like that right. is a lot of how i've lived my life so that's why i decided to kind of take that name um it's more of a concept than a name and a lot of like producers are doing that now or instead of just using a name they're a concept so like when you're right. like playing and performing you you know you can have your visuals and it's a lot easier um, but it's also a representation of your brand and so because a lot of who I am is, you know, involved a lot suspenseful things. Like, you don't, you really, honestly, you never know what you're going to get from me. Even musically, right. like I, <laughs> I produce so many different genres and it's, it's like when I play a show, I don't just stay in one particular genre. I like go all over the place. So it's, you know, it's kind of what I decided to change it to. Um, it's also a little easier to like, brand than what I was going by before. So right. it kind of fits a little better. Um, but, <laughs> <I do. laughs> but yeah, I do have two releases that are coming out on two labels here pretty soon. I don't know the release dates yet, but I will definitely post those on my socials. Um, I have, I feel like this year is going to be really a really big year for me musically because I have, I start an academy in April um and this academy has helped like pretty much 
700 students that's gone through it in the past 10 years and almost every student that has graduated this program is now playing some big festival and is a part oh, wow. of some big record label so you know this is a, basically a golden opportunity for me to get my music out there and to learn you know some of the things about it that i don't know like i i don't know everything about production do i make good music i think i i've come a long way can i always right. learn? absolutely <laughs> but the part about you know the the entertainment industry that i don't know is how to brand myself how to make my social media look professional because one of the the teachers um of this academy was, was a talent buyer and he even specifically would say you know when when i'm you know looking for talent like you can send me your amazing track but before i even listen to that track i'm gonna look you up and i'm gonna see is this person somebody uh that people relate to and they listen to and that they are connected with and if you know i don't see that connection then i don't even listen to your track wow. so basically this you know part of this academy is they teach you how to make yourself you know relate to other people and so that people want to relate to you and people want to be uh, you know invested in you and things like that and that's the part of the the music stuff that I definitely don't know anything about. I would be a horrible salesperson. I don't know how to market myself. I'm terrible <laughs> on social media, honestly. Like I I rarely post on Instagram. I share memes on Facebook is about 90% of what I do. Right. Occasionally, <laughs> occasionally I have a meltdown and I post a oh my god, this is an awful fucking day post, but that's few and far between. I think as I've gotten older <laughs> I'm starting right. to realize that <laughs> Facebook isn't necessarily like the best place to kind of have a bad day on. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, people definitely judge you on it, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, hands down. Um, but then, that's another thing that's like, on one hand, social media is great in the sense that it's helped build a lot of the things like the big festivals and, you know, helped producers get to where they are today and helps long lost friends and family members stay in contact and connected. Right. But, you know, on the other hand, it's also a way to bully and judge and to, you know, compare yourself to people who you think are living this perfect life, but you really don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So who's going to, you know, post every single moment of their life on Facebook. I mean, there probably are people out there, but more often than not, everybody's <laughs> going to post, post the good stuff that's going on. You don't really ever get to see the bad. So if you're comparing yourself to somebody else, which you should never do, because um, everybody's journey is different in life, but you know, we all are guilty of it, but you're going to, you know, if you're going to use Facebook as a way to compare yourself to somebody else's success, well, you know, that ain't, that ain't the best place to do it. Cause we're all right. showing our best on social media. <laughs> so I will tell you just from watching you on social media that I told you when we were messaging that you were a very big inspiration for me doing this. And the reason for that was because I saw both sides of you. I saw where you struggled on social media and, you know, when you were upset or whatever else. But I also saw what you did between like the MMA fights and the roller derby and the music. And, you know, I was talking to my wife and I'm like, I'm like, why can't I do this? Look, she's, look what she's doing. <laughs> like she's still had, you know, she's 
still battling this stuff and having bad days, but look what she's doing. And my wife's like, yeah, absolutely. So I meant it when I said that you were a very big inspiration in me getting this off the ground. I'm very humbled to hear that. (laughs) Um, And I'm glad, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I, you know, can be inspirational to somebody. I mean, that, that's kind of the thing about life, right? Is if you can make a difference in one person's life, you know, that's, that's a success, right? I mean, we all, we all have people we look up to and, you know, like I said, we're all guilty of comparing ourselves or comparing our successes to other people. And, you know, I think that's one of the hard things is having that realistic, like approach to life and, you know, understanding that you can do anything you want. I mean, it's better to try and fail than to never try at all. And no matter how, crappy I've thought about myself and no matter how much the odds were stacked against me like when I played football or living with an abusive ex-boyfriend who would tear down every single success I had or whatever to be able to to stay resilient and to, to keep motivated on what is important to you like you, it's a battle in your own head you have to get past those bad days because you're gonna have them you know, I mean, there's days where I, I'll be writing music and I'll look at the song and I'm like, this sounds like shit. I'm just going to delete everything. I don't know why I'm doing this. This <laughs> is just stupid. Nobody likes my music. Why should I even try? And then there's days where I like, you know, where it just flows. And it's like, I, it, before I know it, like six, seven hours have passed by and I've written this, you know, track and I'm like, oh, wow, I, I do have a creative side. And like, you know, I, there's a couple vocalists that I'm collabing with. Um, those songs are going to come out this year too. I don't know exactly when, but, um, and they're very, very well-known vocalists in the EDM community. Like I was really shocked that they were willing to work with me because I'm, you know, I'm a nobody producer. Like these are vocalists that are working with some of the big names in EDM, you know, people like Tiesto and Armin Van Buren and Slander and Excision. Like I have, you know, I've had a couple of vocalists that said yes. And, and that's, again, what it all goes down to, like, if you're, you know, there's something you really want to do, but you're too afraid to try. Well, you know, it just takes that one person to say yes. Right. You know, you can have a million no's, but it just takes that one yes. And, and that's what I did on Instagram is I would message vocalists and I'd be like, hey, I'm an upcoming producer. I know I'm not known yet. But I was, you know, really wondering if you'd be interested in collaborating with me. And I'll be honest, half the time I didn't get a response. But, yep. then, <laughs> you know, then I got two and they happened to be two of some of the bigger, you know, female vocalists in EDM. And so now I have two tracks that I'm sitting on that, you know, can be promoted, you know, once I get them out there and, and where I want them to be. Like right. <laughs> one of the vocalists has over 2 million followers on Spotify, you know, oh, wow. gonna, in fact, the track that I'm writing with her, um, it's a very, very important track. And it's taken me, I've had her vocals for three years and it's taking me a very long time to write because of the meaning of it. And it's basically about dealing with mental illness and the song is called playing tricks. And it's, it's because, you know, her and I both struggle with mental illness. And so this song is basically, her vocals are amazing and phenomenal, but it tells the story of what it's like being somebody who struggles with 
you know, mental illness. And so I've really wanted to get my skill set up there and take time to write this track because of how personal it is and because of the story that I want to tell with it. I'm sure it'll be great. I, I don't doubt that for a second. So I will actually send you a, a preview of it when we get off the call, but obviously for right you know, all intents and purposes, <laughs> it's for yours only, right? Now. Yes. Yes. I get that. I get that completely. <laughs> But no, I, I completely agree. I've done the same thing with this. I've messaged people. I'm like, hey, I got a podcast. I don't have many followers, but, <laughs> you know, you want to be on it? And I've gotten a couple responses. And, you know, much like you, I've gotten a lot of <laughs> quiet. <laughs> well, and I know it took forever for us to actually kind of connect and get this done. And I apologize for that. But... Nope. No need to. It's It all happens when it's supposed to. That's the way I look at it. So... You know, when we tried before, you were you were still in the living situation with your ex. So I don't think that you you might have opened up, but I don't know if you would have with him being there. In all honesty, I don't think there would have been an opportunity. It was just literally like the minute I walked into this apartment, it was just like walking on eggshells and being afraid to even say the wrong thing. Cause this person would become so unhinged, like towards right before he moved out. Like I was literally worried that this person was going to like kill me in my sleep. That's how unhinged this man wow. had become, you know? And it's like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I know I could have beat the living shit out of him if I had to. Like, <laughs> I am a trained fighter. And yet, right. Like, if he's a man or not, like, I, I would have knocked him out, but you know, I mean, if I'm asleep or whatever, I mean, I, you know, right. can't defend myself, but you know, I'm glad he's out of my life and I don't, you know, I don't wish terrible things on him. Like he's a mentally troubled individual and I hope that he gets the help that he needs and he eventually figures out his life and, you know, gets a happily ever after. I'm just glad that he's not in my life anymore. Right. No, for sure. And I'm glad I'm glad you're starting to do better and everything like that too. So I, and I, I'm sure this year will be huge for you. I, I sense it. I'm just taking it day by day, you know, right now my main <laughs> focus is seriously, like, I just want to be, I just want to be healthy. You know, I've started doing daily meditation, something I never thought that I could, you know, I'm ADHD. So I've started doing this like guided meditation and it's only like five minutes every night, but I've noticed a huge difference. And I, I run every morning and whether I feel like it or not, I will sit down and I will work on music for, you know, I set a goal for at least an hour, if not more a day. And lately, you know, since I've been recovering from surgery and I've literally been off work for almost five months and, right. haven't, you know, I've done, had nothing, there's been no excuse for me to not work on music. So I've done the best I could to make my time pretty productive with music, although I'm not going to lie, I've probably binged watched every possible <laughs> TV series out there right now. So if you need recommendations of any good series, I've watched a few. I got plenty. But, uh, you know, I think, honestly, the surgery kind of happened um, because, one, it was my body telling me it was time to slow down, but two, I think it gave me the time that I needed to be able to reset mentally and really take a look back at my whole life. and and everything that happened in this past year and, you know, really start to find healthy ways to process like a lot of the trauma that I've held on to throughout my life and to 
learn to be kinder to myself and to understand that it's okay to not be okay. You don't right. always have to be okay. Like that's not life, but it's not okay to stay there. You have to get out of that position. Right. No, I definitely That's it. So we'll go ahead and stop there. I thank you so much for recording with me. It means a ton. So, okay. Thanks everybody for listening to that episode. Thank you, Bernadette for recording with me for that. Make sure you go follow her music. I'll make sure to include links in the description of the episode. I'll also post it on social media. That way it's easy to find. Make sure you're liking, subscribing, following to the podcast, Stickle Podcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, Threads, Snapchat, Blue Sky. Uh, Working currently on trying to get all the past episodes up on YouTube, so those are available. And as always, if you ever want to be on the podcast, if you want to just reach out, if you got any feedback, anything like that, send me an email, sticklepodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, be safe. Don't be a stranger.